Welcome once again to Core Ideas, a paleo-limnology podcast where we delve into all things lake sediments. Um, as usual, uh, we are your hosts for the show, myself, Adam Jaziorski. And myself, Josh Thienpot. Thanks for coming back again. Uh, joining us on the first episode of our, I don't know, is it, are they seasons? Do you call them seasons when there are in six my, of them that you released in like a month and a half? In my mind, I'm just thinking of them as more as arcs. Arcs. I like arc better. I really do just, like arc better. Of just like a, a a general thread, and so whereas we've spent the last several episodes focused on fundamentals of paleolimnology to develop a vocabulary that we can uh, refer back to going forward, uh, here we're, it's a some lighter fare. We're going into the weeds a little bit of a couple of um, uh, topics that are of more general interest uh, in terms of paleo. Uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, the joy of field work. Then we're going to talk a little bit about uh, computing and paleo, and not not how we use computing. We're certainly not going to get into the the method part, but more the history and how it's linked to paleo and how things have kind of co developed. Uh, we have a our first interview, uh, I believe, scheduled. The, the Is person it official? Li- it, I think it's official. I, I have can, we asked? Yeah, we can speak. Yeah, yeah, I asked. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Professor Jenny Carosi, who also lives in the same house as me, so that helps. Uh, given the current situation, uh, will be joining us for an episode this season. Uh, what else? We talked about grad studies and a little bit on on that. I haven't really flushed that one out. But you know, you want to be a grad student. What does that mean? Especially from the perspective of uh, paleolimnology, like what does it mean to do a master's versus a PhD? Basically, questions that I, you know, went into. Completely ignorant of the answer, and just figured out as I went along. And passing as I'm an old man now, pass on some words of wisdom to the nobody that's listening. Yeah, exactly. And uh, a couple other topics as well that we'll add into this uh, this delving into the weeds, which I, I really like as a title. Uh, but today we're going to talk about fieldwork and uh, the joys of fieldwork, with a, some big air quotes about joy. Uh, the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. Yeah, for sure. And I do want to preface this by saying that you know we are, we're pretty lucky, both of us, and we're we'll tell some funny stories. Hopefully, while we think they're funny, um, and maybe have a few tips. Hopefully, that are useful uh, if you've never been in the field and you may not be going this year, but uh, you're going to be out there soon. Um, but I personally have never had any really bad field experiences. Nothing where anyone was was injured badly. Uh, or, or heaven forbid, killed. But those things do happen, and, and happily not that often in paleolimnology, obviously, but in fieldwork in general. So just to preface that, to say that this is all meant to, to be fun, um, but nothing in the, the history is really, really dark uh, in our personal experiences, and that's not the case for everyone. So let's get that out there. Okay. And so I thought we'd begin just by, like we talked about retrieving sediment cores, um, but we can kick it off with a little bit more and just talking about in more general terms about fieldwork and paleolimnology and what that entails. Um, because in order to have some sediment to work on in the sediment, you have to go out and collect it. Um, but really, uh, paleolimnology is largely a laboratory and microscope focused discipline. So compared to some other, some other fields where you could be out for months at a time, uh, doing, collecting your data, 
Um, really, paleo uh, field season is relatively short in the order of like days to weeks. Like, what's the longest you've ever been out continuously for any particular field Away season? from home? Uh, a month. Yeah, so I'm Four the weeks. Same but that was same. a fair bit of driving to get there and the pace was not you know, there was a lot of time built into that to uh, to accommodate things going going a little bit off kilter, and but and that was a really long trip. On average, I would say two weeks uh, is you know to eighteen days is the longest I'm away. That would be the median for sure is two weeks. Yeah, and it all depends on where you're going because travel time is a huge aspect of it all. Uh, oh yeah, for sure. In that two weeks, I would say that you know four or five of those days are related to travel and getting prepped when you get there for sure. And, um, you know, just for general perspective, like really for a master's student or a master's project, you can collect, depending on how close they are together, you know, especially in a single lake kind of study, um, you can collect all the cores you need in one day once you're there. Absolutely. Yeah. And no question, even if you're collecting not just sediments, you're collecting water, you might be doing some net toes or plankton toes or... Uh, whatever other samples, it'd be very straightforward in a week to collect all of the samples you're going to use, and maybe some ancillary pro- uh, projects on top of that too. Um, but a lot of the a lot of the work uh, from a paleo sense really comes down to the logistics um, and uh, planning and making sure your equipment works and dealing with equipment failures uh, in the field um, and uh, preparing in terms of um, you know getting to know your field team, uh, getting to know your equipment. Um, it's a good idea if you're, depending on whether you're uh, collecting from a boat or a canoe or a Zodiac to actually have used it beforehand before you were at your mission critical uh, moment. Make sure you have the- everything to blow up the boat. You have the at least one pump <laughs> if you're going to be using an inflatable boat because it's amazing how much harder it is to patch a uh, rubber or PVC boat when you're not in the lab. Absolutely. And, um, yeah. And so one, one thing that I've kind of taken away from, uh, coring a little bit is on some field teams, um, you want, you want to have an idea before and of who's going. And as sad as it is, kind of say the some element of muscles and or height are kind of a key requirement on the team in terms of, you know, there's going to be some pulling of cores, if you're going by canoe, you need to have at least two people on the team that are tall enough to be able to lift it on top of your truck, keeping in mind that you may be renting a, uh, a rental truck much taller than the car that you're used to driving or have done your test day on. Um, so there are some physical aspects of it. But really, in the grand scheme of things, it's not that tough as long as you have your your very base, base, base level stuff covered. Yeah, and I think that's a good point about what it is you're using as your platform for your sediment collection uh, is really important for some of those logistics. If you're working from a inflatable, like a Zodiac, which is a brand, but you know what I mean, uh, an inflatable um, boat, those things may not be as important because you're going to take it down. You know, you're going to inflate it at the site probably. They're a lot less tippy, so you can have two people kind of working together to take the core. It's easy for two people to be leaning over the edge of one of those uh, even small Zodiacs. In a canoe, that's not going to be the case. It's going to be more or less up to one person to do a lot of it themselves while the other person is keeping the boat stable. Yeah, it's basically so, a counterweight. Yeah, exactly. So knowing uh, how you're going to take your 
your cores is a part of planning in that uh, in that sphere to decide who would make the a good team for that or how you'll work together whatever the team composition is how you'll uh, de- delve up or distribute out the different jobs so we've talked about canoes we talked about uh, inflatable boats um, the other option that isn't probably as common, but for any case where you're going to get onto a bigger lake, you may be worrying, working from a larger boat, which, uh, seems great. It's great to have a, you know, a fishing boat or a pontoon boat or something with a motor on it because one, you don't have to paddle the darn thing. Uh, but two, you get a lot of space in the boat, but sometimes that can be uh, a little more challenging than it would seem at the face of it. The freeboard, so that's the height from the water to the top of the edge of the boat, uh, can get much larger as you get to a larger vessel. And because of that, it can become more challenging to be able to reach in, especially if you're using a gravity core, obviously, to plug that core if you are, instead of being only a few inches above the waterline, going to be more like a foot or a foot and a half uh, above the waterline or more. I'm not going to name any names, but I can think of a classic photo of a certain uh, graduate student being held by her ankles by two field team members to cap the core that was sure. being pulled. Oh, I've, I've been like someone, like, stand on my feet. I am not positive I'm not going to go in here if I have to get in a little bit closer from uh, like a pontoon boat, which are generally quite high off the off the water. So that's uh, those are great. You can get uh, cover a lot more lake a lot faster, uh, but there are challenges associated with every type of coring platform, uh, whatever that might be. And knowing sort of the logistical constraints is really critical to having a good experience when you're out there and collecting good samples. And uh, I'm known for a fact that you've done the gamut in terms of coring from a canoe versus an inflatable boat. I don't even know what the word would be for like a regular boat, um, like a where freeboard is concerned, uh, helicopter, Flow plane. What is your preferred coring platform? Do you the have a ice. favorite? Yeah, the ice. <laughs> Off the ice. <laughs> That's kind of funny. That's uh, one that was massively missing from my list because it's something I've never done. Yeah. Uh, ice for sure. Uh, as long as it's a nice day. Uh, if I had to pick a platform, it would be an inflatable Zodiac style um, boat, I think. it To me, it gives all of the kind of, you know, it ha- it's not perfect, but it does fit into all the things that are useful well it's low to the water they're stable so you can like stand and hammer a core in it you can mount a small motor to it or we use an electric uh, trolling motor that has a car battery which doesn't give you a lot of power but it's better than paddling for when we use them around here uh you can you know they're not crazy heavy they blow up pretty fast uh so to me that's the perfect option Unless you have to carry that thing through the woods because it weighs about 85 pounds and then it becomes a little more uh, a little more cumbersome. Yeah, this is where I'm real minds because I've got some experience with the Zodiac, or I don't know if it's officially a Zodiac, I guess it's a brand name, but a Zodiac style boat. Um, and then I go on a very small lake where you, but the second you bring a motor into the equation, and usually if the whole point is you're dealing with the Zodiac you know, in a pickup, it's because you can deflate it, which means you're also transporting a motor. And then you have to deal with packing that motor and then potentially spending a lot of time on its side and dealing with flooding. And yeah, have you ever no, that's a good point. motor. That's no, I haven't. And the reason we use them is because we're usually transporting 
by helicopter to the site. And that means rolling it up and uh, in deflating it, rolling it up and putting it in the back of the helicopter is the only way. There's no way to get a canoe out there. You can sling out a big boat, uh, but it's you know that's going to take double the helicopter time. So that's the only real option we have in a lot of the situations up north. Uh, so that's why, but I think it's a good platform and, and locally we use them too. There are times when I, I've thought, you know, this would be faster with a canoe. You could drag this thing over bad terrain a lot easier. Uh, but it's still a a really nice platform, even though most of the time we don't, um, use gas motors. In fact, the lab, we don't have any gas motors for, for the Zodiac. It's actually made by mercury inflatables. It's not Zodiac. Okay. No, I, I, uh, agree as a pure from purely from the perspective of like the actual collecting the cores. Yes. The inflatable boat, um, is the best cause you can definitely have two people working together. You're very low to the water. You have room inside it to like move stuff around that you don't have in a canoe. Um, there's a, but, usually something to tie your cores to in some sort of bucket. So there's lots of logistical things that are just, you know, a little bit easier when you get a little more space. But on a more holistic level, I am very much on Team Canoe. Um, again, I don't have the northern uh, or much northern experience. I guess all my northern stuff has been from the floats of a plane. Um, so I wasn't dealing with any boats on on, on that particular uh, expedition. But a canoe, just it's light and slinging on top of the truck. Less stuff to break. Um, but the downside. You can drag them over much. anything. Like you never worry about putting a hole in a decent canoe. No, I, I've uh, I really enjoyed kind of using it in the situations that I have used it in. I think it was the right choice for most of those experiences. Uh, you don't want to portage uh, an eighty-five pound boat all that often. It gets really boring. Um, yeah. So no, I think, I think there are really, uh, this is a good kind of discussion and something to think about because there is a best, it's not perfect, but there's a best uh, option for almost every situation you're going to find yourself in. All right. Um, and then, so outside of logistics and equipment and deciding what you're going to do in terms of collecting your field core, I think one of the, at least for me, didn't really realize it until I was a little ways into the game is uh, how um, challenging fieldwork can be in terms of personalities at times. Because uh, if you're out on the road for three weeks away from your family with someone that you've just met, potentially, you know, in the run-up to the field season, um, it really can be a litmus test on whether or not you like fieldwork. And not everybody does. Some people, it's just a, a um, ordeal that must be endured in order to do the rest of your project. Um, and other people live for it, uh, and it is the highlight of the uh, of the whole whole paleo experience. Yeah, for sure. Experience it's the whole reason, not the whole reason, but it's the selling point for them being there. And I think it's interesting that it really becomes a litmus test because I've definitely. Um, but now there was people that were gung ho thinking it was the reason that they were there and then kind of soured on it and said, let's just get this done. Yeah. I want to go home. Oh, for sure. 
Yeah, and and that can change over the time you're out doing a field season. A longer field season uh, becomes more mentally taxing as you get into it. The first couple of days may be great fun, but after you know you're you're having to do laundry at some laundromat you found driving past, and uh, you know haven't washed your hair properly in a little while, and just this is a problem this- you have. Uh, not not currently, no. <laughs> At one point it might have been. Uh, not anymore. Uh, sad face. Um, but eating the same food, like how many Cliff Bars can you eat uh, at, you know, over the course of two or three weeks? It's a lot and you'll never want another one again at that point or Nature Valley Bars or whatever they are. Well, that's kind of a key thing is like the ability to deal with monotony of food is uh, yeah. part of it. Like that's For one sure. of the make or breaks. If you were quite happy having peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for lunch every day for three weeks, then you're well on your way to dealing well with a field environment. Because I just do that all year just so I'm always ready to be in the field. Because you may have, or at least in my experience, I'm lazy, um, but you may have thoughts of having a very varied lunch and being more adventurous in terms of what your uh, grocery run is going to be like at the beginning but if you're doing really long days, like lots of driving, lots of time out in the sun, you know, it's like, ah, let's just slap something together as quick as it degenerates into that very, very quickly. Especially and for lunches, because you're packing them before you go and you're thinking about, you, you're not thinking about food, you're thinking about work. You're thinking about making sure that you didn't forget the electrical tape today, like you did yeah. the day before. And uh, the Vaseline and all those different, you know, bits. And well, mate, wait, we were drying the bungs where? We have to make sure we got eight of them. Mm-hmm. It's and only then, seven. Yeah, exactly. Where's the eighth one? <laughs> Jesus, the squirrel took it. Uh, and, you know, the last thing you think of is, like, oh, crap, I didn't pack a lunch. Just I'm just going to take a couple cliff bars. So two things out of that is that pack more food than you're going to expect, you're going to need. Because the day could end up longer than you expect. It may not go as well. And then don't make it elaborate because you're not going to appreciate the culinary, you know, Epicurean experience when you're out there because you're going to be stuffing that sandwich in probably while you're driving to the next site or labeling some bags or whatever it is. Just get some hearty food and lots of it for field days. You can have a really nice kind of, this is my opinion anyway, and Adam's too, I know. Uh, you can have a really nice lunch on your off day, on your day when you're sectioning, if you're doing them on alternate days or when you're, you know, in transit, uh, not when you're in the field. That's why peanut butter and jam is the absolute perfect food. And I, I know I've like um, pushed that quite hard. And so, yes, we're just going to say right out now, if you have peanut allergies, you're going to have a serious disadvantage in field environments because all of a sudden your lunches became a lot more complicated. You may um, actually be not um, on my list of people I would want to take. <laughs> but this is, I mean, this is more of a personal like, uh, thing about me in general is that just I, general I, bigotry, really? Well, against peanut, yes, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't want to be that way. Uh, I did say when he before he was born that if our son had been born with or had developed a peanut allergy, I might not have taken to him as well because I, peanut peanut butter is a very important part of my life. Um, uh, no, there are lots of alternatives, but the thing. This is a, a little funny aside. Is that the quote of Adams that I uh, use to other people, I say to other people more than any other by probably a hundred times is that 
peanut butter and jam sandwiches are the perfect field food. And that's because you can sit on them, you can get them wet, you can leave them in the bottom of your bag all day, and they taste exactly the same as they did when you put them in there. And you can shake things up by changing the jam week to week. <laughs> You're sick in the head if you think. <laughs> Strawberry. <laughs> I also, and if we're adding these little tidbits of, of uh, wisdom, I always make my sandwiches on bagels as opposed to on bread because they don't deform as much. So if you put, I would usually pack for myself like three sandwiches as a normal kind of full day out. If you make three bread sandwiches, you end up with one six piece of bread sandwich at the end of it because it's in the bottom of my bag with my, you know, okay. my camera and all that stuff. At least bagels hold some structural integrity during that process uh, and you might actually be able to eat them individually. And I had not planned on spending as much time uh, <laughs> devoted to peanut butter sandwiches as we have spent. I'm not looking at the clock right now. But uh, and it's this supposed is totally to be lost on, on you that. because you don't eat meat. But uh, yeah, in the true. last feel and season I went on, I had a bit of a revelation for the shakeup. Um, is the little individual serving cans of tuna um, that come in a variety of like you know, um, like lemon sriracha pepper type stuff, yep. lemon pepper, all that, and just uh, flatbread wraps. And you can you don't have to do anything. You can just throw the two packs in the bag. And and do it on the fly when you're hungry, and uh, it's uh, I don't know I've you know a solid fifteen plus years into uh, uh, my field career, I guess you're going to say it. It was just like my eyes have been open for the first time. It's like this is a whole aspect of like the grocery store. I just walk by and not paying yeah, any attention to sure. until now. The very first field season we took to Nova Scotia, Brian Ginn. Uh, had us buy what I thought was an obscene number of those those little cans of tuna, and they came with crackers in the actual package. So it was like the uh, you know the, the kids have the cheese that they spread onto the crackers. It was the same thing except for adults, I guess, and tuna. Uh, and I ate so many of them that I probably never have. Well, I don't eat meat now, but I never have one again. All lemon pepper. I think it was all they had at the Loblaws in Kingston. Just nothing oh. but lemon pepper. Oh, that might have been your problem. I uh, think no, it definitely I, was. I still have them today. Like just on a on a whim for lunch. Nothing wrong with that. Change, change work my food life. is critical. And then uh, what else would I say? Oh, in terms of uh, field work and general working with the team, uh, roles on the team, and personalities. Uh, one thing that many people find shocking is how quickly you can burn through four life stories in the <laughs> opening 18-hour drive to get to uh, you know, the first place you're going to sample on your three-week field season. Yep, for sure. This is if, if you may have gotten the hint there in Adam's voice is that this is a personal story <laughs> of the two of us and two others uh, as we drove to from Kingston to Halifax or just outside of Halifax in Nova Scotia. Uh, which is a two-day drive. Well, it's not a two-day drive, but you can do it in two days is the best way. And uh, once you get there, now you've just started the trip. Now you have, what was it, three weeks in the yeah. Yeah. in the back country? Well, a week in the back country of a, a national park and then a few other kind of trips around there. And my God, you think, you know, even if you've lived a, such an exciting life as Adam had at that time anyway, uh, you can go through all those stories real quick. 
<laughs> and, I lived. Uh, I lived a boring existence. So I had nothing to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and yeah, and so these kind of field excursions are, um, you know, where real friendships can be made. Um, like it's like you and me. It's like that trip. Like we knew each other beforehand, but I think that we were friends yeah. after that. After oh, spending sure. that huge amount of time in close proximity and hanging out, it's like, oh, you know, yeah, I've shared a lap bench or no, we never shared an office for this guy for a while. People used to He's, get us confused. You remember some of the like senior, when I first started as an undergrad and Adam was just starting his, uh, his PhD, some of these senior people thought we were the same person. Like I got called Adam a lot. <laughs> I don't, I, I never understood that. I don't either. That, but hey. that was the way you introduced yourself to, to me. It's like, you must be Adam. Uh, my name is Josh and BFC is looking for you. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. <laughs> he thinks I'm you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that was, and you know, you know, you go about your daily activities and I was still taking other courses. So there wasn't as much direct uh, connection. And then it was only a couple of years later that we went on this trip. And yeah, after that, completely different. Yeah. No, you can, you can, uh, you can definitely make some pretty strong bonds when you spend that much time to one, uh, with one another, um, out in the field. Yeah, and you can go through, um, like, I mean, within our network of paleo people, you know, you can point the finger at a lot, a lot of good friends when you go, oh, you know, you trace it back and it's like, ah, oh, no, that, it, 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 it traces back to grad school and yeah, for sure. most likely an extended field work um, thing. A lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of friendships are forged uh, in the, in the um, the fires of fieldwork, dealing with problems of um, on the fly, so, yeah, uh, kind of shared slight misery, bad weather. You know, those are the kind of thing. The great days, you know, really nice days out are always great when you're there. But you tell stories about the bad days, uh, not really bad, but you know, difficult the days, days I guess, rather than bad days. You had the difficult days, yeah, that's I mean, the best way to put it. The you, day you that, get thrown you know, curveballs. You know, everything is going fine. You're, you're making good time, and then you are totally bewildered by your map, and you're not very far off the beaten path. Then, you know, you're somewhere in Muskoka, per se, and you're like, "We are there. There is no lake. What went wrong? Yep. Are we more, are we dumb? It's like, no, I know how to read this map. We we are right there. there. There is no body of water here. What is going on? I guess this lends into uh, you know we can go a little bit down like the mishap line. Speaking of lines, oh, yeah, do you have sure. anything you'd like to say about lines in general? Oh, that was a great pitch. Uh, in as we were setting this up, the last segment was uh, reserved for rants, funny stories, and that kind of thing. And we've got a little bit of time on this. And one I would like to. Uh, Make as more of a PSA, but Climb also on that soapbox. A, a Josh rant. Tell us how you really feel. I, oh, I'm up on top of it already. This is this is one that I uh, live on. Uh, is that it would I think be very valuable for those who have never been in the field before, and then people who have been in the field many many times to learn to tie one or two basic knots, so that you do not lose equipment. Uh, that is very valuable and may not be easily replaced if you're in, for say, the outer Mackenzie Delta and you need to keep the boat from drifting along the lake and you have left the anchor in the bottom of a lake uh, because the knot was not tied correctly or you didn't tie it to the boat after someone 
Josh, tied the knot correctly to the actual anchor and you didn't tie it to the boat correctly. Um, so learn to tie a couple of knots. I would recommend knowing how to tie a bowline or a bowline. Uh, and also perhaps a knot you can look up called a highwayman's hitch, which is a great way to tie the line to the boat without having to uh, actually tie a proper knot that's going to be difficult to undo. The uh, axiom about if you don't know how to tie knots, tie lots, was said by people who don't know how to tie Just knots. for counterpoint, I am one of those people. <laughs> And I tie knots yeah. and lots and lots of knots. Because I, I know how yeah. to tie a bowline deep down in my brain, but I go in the field so rarely. Yeah. I'm a consummate city boy. And, uh, right. you know, it's just, I get out there and it's like, there's a rabbit the, go around the tree. It doesn't have to be a bowline. He goes around the tree. He's out. Does he start in the hole? He goes out of the hole, around the tree, back into the hole. Is that right? <laughs> I don't know. I can do it with my eyes closed. I learn <laughs> I don't actually know uh, and I have a hard time teaching people because it's so ingrained it doesn't have to be a bowline learn how to die, double figure eight knot learn go and go to a climbing gym it, that's how I like first learned how to tie knots we had a climbing gym in our high school and that's a knot that you would put on your uh, harness to keep you from falling and the teacher never came and checked <laughs> so whatever <laughs> so here you go kids <laughs> enjoy um, uh, but yeah the I forgot where I was going with that little aside. Oh, there. But yeah, learn how to tie a couple of knots. Um, it, it, it has some value. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's uh, not just for anchors. Uh, I mentioned canoes a lot. You'll want to be able to ensure that the canoe is actually affixed to the roof of your vehicle in some way, shape, or form. Yep. So you're not for sure. All of them can be done with a bowline. That's not to say it's the perfect knot for every situation. An anchor bend might be better to attach an anchor, and if you know how to do that, power to you. Uh, but the bowline will get you through all sorts of great situations. And I thank Brian again, again for making us sit and learn how to tie them uh, before we went in the field the first time. A, As we were labeling okay. some bags, he just had to sit with a piece of rope and just he tie knots. He had a knots. background, doesn't he? He was in the, yeah. in the Navy, yeah, for sure. Not old enough, if you're listening, Brian, not old enough to be in the Navy where they needed to tie lots of ropes, but <laughs> like the sailing Navy. But uh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, so, yes. So, I don't really have any rants. Phew. Oh, I'm so glad I got that off my chest on record because I've been telling this to people for a long time. Uh, and it's nice to have that out there so I can just direct them to episode seven of the podcast. Um, and then I don't have any equivalent rants really. Um, most of my, I don't know, not even rants, but just like, ah, oh, type moments stem really from, um, paddling. And so in the same vein as wanting to have some idea of how to tie knots before you go anywhere, if you're going to be using a canoe, um, it's probably worth having a little bit of familiarity with the canoe before you get in and it's loaded with your gear. And, yep. um, and just cause things can go sideways pretty quickly. Um, literally. And like my one real field mishap that I've been party to was, uh, everyone was going sw swimmingly. We were, we were paddling, um, on the same Nova Scotia field season that uh, uh, Josh already alluded to, 
along the apparently ironically named Still Brook. <clears throat> it is a lie. And we were going to a dock uh, on Still Brook. Yeah. And exactly. Like a built as structure. part of a portage um, uh, route. And just as, and there was a, a, a tightening of the, the stream, river. Well, I guess it wasn't really a river. Um, but there was creek, creek. Yeah. Um, and uh, the brook. And, uh, um, yeah. you know, there was some rapids a little ways off. And just we weren't paying super attention because we are just going to a dock. And as many other people in this park had done a thousand times before, but the water levels were, I guess, much higher than they were normally. And uh, basically as we were reaching for the dock, the current snagged us and sucked us into the rapids. And within uh, five, ten seconds, uh, we'd been tipped out. All our gear had been tipped out. The canoe was sideways against some rocks. And I was... Uh, Luckily, someone had tied all the gear to the boat with some really good knots. So I think there's also been some messy knots as well, and that would, that held. And um, yep. <laughs> and uh, basically, stand. I was standing in the rapids, stopping the canoe from being sucked down further, screaming to Josh to the next lake and sent out into the next to lake. Josh to throw me a line, and uh, you know, it goes from zero to eleven very very quickly. Yeah, and that was one of those situations that had a happy ending in the end. I think actually, if I'm not mistaken, something, an oar maybe, or a paddle did end up downstream because it floated past and was in the next lake that we were going to. We definitely had to go and pick something up in the next lake, whether it was a life jacket. No, it wouldn't have been a life jacket. Anyway, something no. had floated. Well, we lost away. like a whole bunch of stuff went out of the canoe, and I was basically, had a, from where I was standing, had a, you had a line around me. And I was reaching into the rapids, picking up like the core and, and stuff. Yeah, it was a bit of a river rescue situation. Yeah. Um, and uh, but I don't think we actually lost anything. No, no, I think we we got everything. And I mean, it was you could stand in the water, so it wasn't. It wasn't deep rapids. They weren't very fast rapids, but it were you know not rapids. Yeah, that there, there, were, there were things breaking for sure. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and. It just is one of those things that you don't expect little things like that to happen. And uh, it was getting late in the day. We'd already done a bunch of work. We were trying to make it to a, uh, it wasn't a campsite. It was, it was a, a cabin. It was a ranger the, cabin. Oh, the ranger cabin. That's right. We were staying uh, in the national park there. It would have sucked and, if you were uh, camping that night. Cause yeah, you, for sure. And This it, is where I learned yeah. firsthand exactly how much water a sleeping bag can hold. And it is tons. Yeah, no doubt. And we were pretty we were pretty smart about the things, not knowing that was going to happen yet. We had two people in each boat. We had two boats, two people in each boat. And we had a, a set of spare things. And there's some pretty funny pictures of Adam dressed in all my extra like uh, warm weather gear because all his stuff was soaked while we rang out uh, his sleeping bag. So we had spares of most things. We had tents in case we hadn't found the cabin. But yeah. And really I'm a bit did. larger than Josh. It's not a flattering photo. <laughs> Uh, and it did, um, but it did make you remember that, you know, don't expect everything to go exactly as planned because if you do that, you're not going to be prepared for those weird little, uh, those weird little things that just happen in the field. And that was on day one. That was on day one. We'd not done anything. Nope. Yeah. We were planning to go to the the first lake the next day. Yeah. The idea is that, uh, that 
could have been really, really bad in terms of like losing a corer. What would we have done? We were on a, I don't know, like a five day portaging route that we weren't going back to the car for. Um, you know, things happen. Yeah. Um, but it does make a funny story now. Oh yeah, yeah. Especially this, the Stillbrook aspect that still kind of makes oh, me. Oh yeah, the irony of the name of like, is just spectacular. You know. Um, and then what else? What else do we want to talk about? Um, you've got a little bit here about the importance of sunscreen. Oh yeah, this is a, a one. This is one that, unlike where I know how to tie a lot of different knots, I always forget to put my sunscreen on, and the worst. Uh, and not on nice days, like beautiful days when it's sunny and you expect to, you know, be out on a nice day. Um, are not the days I forget. The days I forget are in the middle of the winter, uh, and you don't realize how much sun reflects off of the ice of a lake up under your hat or under your sunglasses. And the worst sunburn I've ever had in my life. Uh, Jesse Vermeer and I were out on a lake in Fort McPherson, so about an hour and a half helicopter flight from Inuvik. And it was a beautiful day. And my God, though, was I roasted after that. I was absolutely like in a peeling sunburn coming back into Toronto in whatever, April, people looking at me like, where have you, oh, look at this guy who's been down south. Like, nope, was up in the middle of the, <laughs> middle of the Mackenzie Delta. Thanks though. So yeah, wear your sunscreen every day. Yeah. So, so basically I'm on team sunscreen as well, but for slightly different reasons because I don't have as much anywhere near the Northern experience you do. And I've largely gone by the philosophy of if I can't wear shorts, I'm not really interested. That's a pretty good deal. Yeah. I've never, I don't remember the last time I wore shorts in the field, <laughs> frankly. If, if it's not cold, the bugs are out, so not going to be good. I yeah, know. So, well, with, uh, if you're doing all your uh, coring from canoe, basically uh, swimming trunks are the uh, field gear of the day. Perfect. So you can just be absolutely soaked with yep. all the stuff that you're pulling in and have yeah. a dip afterwards. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then. Then what else would we have in terms of pearls of wisdom uh, in our expeditions? I think one uh, from a southern, I guess, relatively speaking, southern Ontario uh, um, point is I, I was shocked at how difficult finding lakes can be in, or not finding lakes, but finding access to lakes can be in like the Muskoka region because uh for some reason, the on smaller lakes, the public launch signs, the public launches are usually very well hidden. Yeah, for sure. And th- I found that's the case in Nova Scotia as well. Yeah, uh, the times I've been there, it's like. Uh, and I bet you this. I bet you this uh, would be more broadly applicable than you'd think. I, I bet you that's probably fairly common all over. Uh, more southern locations into the states and and other locations as well. Yeah, like where the signs have been moved to protect someone's little slice of heaven. And it's usually a very poorly pain, maintained access. It's just basically a little like dirt track. Gravel you know? bar, yeah. Um, and so it's not very visible. Um, but the kind of thing that you'll drive back and forth past like 10 times, not realizing that is the boat access because there is no signs. And that, that can be infuriating. Oh yeah, for sure. Because you know it's there. Yeah, we did that just this year. We were out, just went for a day trip, 
in order to try and get some sediment for um, a master student and knew there was a, a, a boat launch. People go and sample the lake all the time, but if you don't know where it is, my God, yeah, nope, no idea. Yep. But in a lot of those situations, like in that situation, uh, some really nice people let us access the lake through their property and that can be the case. You can find some really good people can, uh, yeah. who can make up for those kind of access issues. But in other cases, you may not have as much uh, luck with the local Yeah, no, my community. batting average on door knocking sucks. Like maybe oh, yeah. I'm just, you know, an unsavory looking individual or something. But Maybe, yeah. I'm, you know, definitely uh, you want the nicest looking person of your field team to be the one doing the door knocking. Um, yeah, I, I've actually not had that that bad luck with it. Uh, I really hate doing it for whatever reason, um, but uh, I can't remember. I can't remember more than one or two uh, examples of being told no that you weren't. Um, they weren't going to be accommodating in that situation. So I've had, uh, I think, pretty good luck with that. It's not not the looks. I'll tell you that. Yeah. No. I've <laughs> no. I, I guess maybe I've just done a, a fair bit more. I've definitely. Ran into some maybe where you go. Yeah, real. Most of my like, I think in in uh, a lot of places down east, you're probably going to get a little more uh, uptake than you might get in kind of Ontario cottage country. Yeah, like some real negative ones and a vibe of no, and if you come back knocking again, I'll shoot you. Kind of vibe. It's like has happened yeah. more than once, and it's like, but you just gotta you just gotta figure it out, and then you find out where that tiny little hidden launches and it's like i didn't need to use your fancy dock anyway drop a (laughs) make sure you drop a waypoint on your gps for that location um but yeah i i um i think that's i don't really have any any more to add but just in terms of like field work yeah it's like high highs low lows um but uh you know it's, it's very rare that you you know come back empty-handed those are you know usually you don't always come back with everything you wanted but uh um you come back with something and you know your your projects develop from there in many ways yeah for sure bad weather might be the like for helica i've maybe been on i've been on one trip that i think we came back with not what we went looking for we had to find completely different things but that was weather related and of all the times i've been up north you figure it out you get it done uh, and and you may have to do a little bit of adapting, but that works out in the end, and everyone's happy uh, with what the solution is in the end. Uh, but and you'd come back with some stories um, after that too. And uh, yeah, and I would one hundred percent encourage you know people that you know are thinking about doing something that involves some field work. Um, you know, don't dodge it. Uh, it can you know. I, I guess mentioned earlier the consummate city slicker, um, and uh, you know the vast majority of my time in the quote unquote bush has been field work related. I'm not an avid camper or anything like that, and yep. um, no, a lot of good times have been had. Yeah, for sure. I I would qualify myself in maybe not as much now that I'm a little more tied down, but was the person who would always go in the field. I was always ready to join any field team uh, and it probably cost me a little bit of time during my grad studies by helping other people do a lot of their field work but i regret none of those uh, experiences no i think in those you know 
couple of weeks or even a semester, I think uh, the payoff, because I guess this is one thing that we totally glossed over, but fieldwork can be cool, but fieldwork where you are the assistant and bear no responsibility whatsoever for the, you know, whether or not you, like if hypothetically speaking, you came back empty handed, it doesn't really affect you because you were just there as an extra set of hands. Those are by far the best field trips. Oh yeah, for sure. Now field work's really stressful because there's <laughs> logistical constraints on top of it. <laughs> yeah, but when you're along for the ride to help, um, and so I'd say, you know, any recommendation I'd give to a grad student where you know this chance is to tag along because someone needs help. Um, you know, all the stuff we mentioned beforehand, developing friendships, going somewhere new, doing something different—that's cool. But um, <clears throat> but on top of that. When the stress is actually quite low, uh, that's when you really enjoy it. And you get your skill set up and you become that person who, you know, when someone's looking for somebody who's done that kind of coring or that technique, you're that person. And uh, it's not a bad person to be. Yeah, it adds up to other field experiences and you get to see new places and meet a different core of people that are out there. And yeah, there's not, uh, if you can and, and not everyone can, it's a great opportunity. And I, I think the the last thing I would say is that we only talked about a few little things. This is probably the first of a semi-recurring series on the quote-unquote joys of fieldwork. Uh, we'll dig up some more stories that come to come to mind and a few other rants or little tidbits of take-home knowledge. So we'll probably do another one of these in the future. But for now, I think that probably covers, uh, covers this one. And uh, I think, you know, if you think... If you have anything you'd like to add or have us to talk about in the future, drop us a line. Um, you can do it via Twitter. Our Twitter handle is? At uh, Core Ideas Paleo, P-A-L-E-O. Um, and the uh, email address for longer form uh, responses. Uh, there's nothing currently in the mailbag, but um, keep I keep on checking. Is uh, Core Ideas Podcast <laughs> at gmail.com. And... Uh, all of our show notes are posted at coreideas.ajeziorski.ca. So Ajeziorski is A-J-E-Z-I-O-R-S-K-I. Um, and we have the, uh, the notes of everything we've talked about of all the episodes so far. And that's where you get the full, I guess, season arc of fundamentals. And uh, now we're moving on into some lighter fare um, about things that we find interesting in paleo exactly other topics that we're interested in talking about and if you have any suggestions to add to a future arc let us know and we'll definitely uh put an episode together on that yeah and so uh thanks for listening and uh, we'll be back again next week to go into the weeds again on something a little bit different talking about computing in paleo um uh, but thanks for listening and uh see you soon yep take care